بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا مولانا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين الحمد لله so التعيون الثاني in the entry on التعيون الثاني the second determination or the second whatever you want to call it I mean تعيون is translated individuation in the Avicennan tradition but Determination is better than the Akbarian tradition. Um, so he goes through various uh, ways to understand the Tayyanathani, various ways in which it's named. And so he says here, وَأَمَّا تَسْمِيَتُهُ بِحَضْرَةِ الْعَمَائِيَةِ فباعتبار البرزخية الحاصلة بين الوحدة والكثرة المشتملة هذه البرزخية على هذه الحقائق الكلية الأصلية المذكورة من حيث صلاحية إضافتها إلى الحق بالأصالة وإلى الخلق بالتبعية متميزة بحكم الكلية الأصلية الجنسية وانتشاء فروعها وأنواعها وجزئياتها منها في غير هذه البرزخية مفصلة مميزة فلكون العماء هو الغيم الرقيق سميت هذه البرزخية الحائلة بين إضافة هذه الحقائق للحق إلى الخلق بالحضرة العمائية So we were talking about the notion of the huyula as the pure potentiality in existence for the emergence of individuated beings, uh, determined beings, distinct beings. Now, it's important to note, I, I, I hope people didn't get confused and think that distinct is the same as muta'ayyan, because in the whole approach that we're trying to explain, the, the distinction between distinct and muta'ayyan Distinct and individuated is, is very, very important. Everything which is individuated is distinct, but not everything which is distinct is individuated, which is al-umum wal-khusus al-mutlaq. So um, this says, as for calling al-ta'ayun al-thani al-hadra al-amma'iyya, Uh, this is in terms of it being an isthmus or a barzakh which obtains betwixt unity and multiplicity. This isthmus uh, comprising these original foundational universal principles of haqqaiq min haythu salahiyat idhafati ila al-haqq bil-asala insofar as they can in a principial sense they can be ascribed to or placed in relation to or made to pertain to the real and to creation in a subordinate way. 
So he says, وَأَمَّا تَسْمِيَتُهُ بِحَضْرَةِ الْعَمَائِيَةِ فِي بِعْتِبَارَ الْبَرْزَخِيَةِ الْحَاصِلَةِ بَيْنَ الْوَحْدِ وَالْكَثْرَ الْمُشْتَمِلَةِ هَذِهِ الْبَرْزَخِيَةِ عَلَى هَذِهِ الْحَقَائِقِ الْكُلِّيَةِ الْأَصْلِيَةِ الْمَذْكُورَةِ مِنْ حَيْثُ الصَّلَاحِيَةُ إِضَافَتِهَا إِلَى الْحَقِّ بِالْأَصَالَةِ وَإِلَى الْخَرْقِ بِالتَّبَعِيَةِ but then when they enter the stage in which they're distinct, they, uh, they are distinct in terms of universality, the, 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 the foundation of universality, the generic origin of universality, when tishat furu'iha wa anwa'iha, and then the way in which from that generic reality, the way that from that generic reality, the, uh, the branches of those existence emerge, and their species were just and their particulars, see that he's distinguishing the generic, the species, the just so this distinct emergence takes place in a in levels subsequent to that barzakhiyah. The barzakhiyah is the thing which is allowing it to happen. As in the um, uh, the hadith, the the thin cloud. سميت هذه البرزخية حائلة بين إضافة هذه الحقائق الحق للخلق بالحضرة العمائية. So this isthmus, which, uh, يعني, it allows these حقائق to be have إضافة to the حق in one way and إضافة to the خلق in another way. It's called الحضرة العمائية. Right. So what is التعيون الثاني? Al-Ta'ayun al-Thani is, well, what's Ta'ayun al-Awwal and what's not Ta'ayun? So uh, this is something which is very important and it's worth uh, having in the background while we study because this is the approach that we hope to be a, a insignificant student of when we're um, uh, working on this question of Nafs al-Amr and, um, and, and the other things that we're looking at at Taba. Um, and this is the, the, the foundational methodology that we, that this is the ontology also, which is lying in the background. Um, and so just a very brief view of this, the, the, if you put down three terms, al-ahadiyya, al-wahda, and al-wahidiyya. Now these correspond broadly to martabat al-la-ta'ayyun, the degree of non-determination uh, and then 
الوحدتو التعيون الأول and الوحدتو التعيون الثاني and then in yet another way of looking at it you have you could say الوجود المطلق totally unrestricted being and then you have الفيد الأقدس which is the um, which is rather similar actually to this concept here, but Al-Fayd al-Aqdas, which is the way in which the Ayana Thabita become determinate. It's the Fayd of the Haq. Yes, the most holy effusion, exactly, Sidi. Uh, which is the 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 failed, the, the non-temporal failed outside of time by which the Ayana Thabita become determinate. And then the, the Faydal Muqaddas al Sifati. So there's a Faydal Aqdas al Dhati and there's a Faydal Muqaddas al Sifati, which is the way that the extra mental particulars, not necessarily the particulars, but the various uh, maratib of, of, of khalq take place, is through that second failed. And so if we go back to the Ahadiyya, the Ahadiyya is considering the essence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of he subhanahu wa ta'ala being beyond any possible predicate or any possible description or any possible attribute that we can relate to Anything in the degrees of experience. Uh, that's Mehmet Erkin's son, He's my, my dear friend Mehmet from uh, Turkey. Habibi, how are you? Um, so, uh, so Al Ahadiyya is considering Allah Taala as beyond any of the attributes that we can ascribe to him. Now, this doesn't mean that he doesn't have the, the names and attributes in himself, but it's uh, the, a recognition that when we think of Allah SWT, we can think of Allah SWT in himself, but we won't then be able to affirm anything positive about him, which uh, finally creams arrived. I felt very nervous until he arrived. <laughs> now I can relax. <laughs> Um, the, 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 but before we can affirm any, uh, uh, anything about what he is really like in himself, we have to be thinking about Allah in terms of madahir. If we're talking, talking about him in himself, in his itlaq, then that's impossible on this understanding. Um, so how then is the transition from that pure unknowability to the beginning of determinateness and creation. How does that take place um, on this understanding very broadly? Um, I hope this will be of help to us when we try to read the texts and when we look at secondary literature and things, because it's good to have a, 
a, a, a clear understanding of the framework. Um, there are many, many details and there are many differences and many different terminological usages. But in any case, um, the first determination, the bridge that goes from the pure Allah subhanahu wa in his pure itlaq, which is beyond knowledge, it's beyond knowing. Knowledge can't even pertain to it because of the definition of knowledge and the, the nature of knowledge is al-ta'ayyun al-awwal. And this is where Allah subhanahu wa reveals his nature to himself. And please, let's have a proviso about this language. He eternally knows everything about himself. This is not talking about a temporal process. It's not talking about parts of the essence. What it's talking about is maratib aqliya i'tibariya, the way that we look at Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala legitimately in terms of the haqaiq. But it doesn't mean that there's a process going on or there are parts uh, as, you know, hashalillah to where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala requires revealing himself in this way or that, or, um, or that there are you know, different sections to the divine essence or anything like that. What it means is that when we look at the divine nature and the unfolding of creation, we discern that there are, well, we should say, al Mukashafin discerned, and we have some degree of of book understanding of 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 what they've said, and also there, there's a degree to which there is an Akli dimension to this as well. But um, so that's just a very important proviso. It's very important to look at this as pe perspectival, something which is 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 rooted in reality, but is perspectival. We're not talking about and there are similar pitfalls in the in the in in Ashari theology when you say, well, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you know, has His essence, and then there, there are these super added uh, attributes which are, uh, are, are not identical, but not other, and they are they exist in themselves. I mean, goodness gracious! I used to get very worried in those um, sessions, and I used to rather have sympathy for the Martesla. I'm afraid, um, not that I do, but I'm just saying <laughs> I was worried. I was a bit worried about it uh, because it is. And then, you know, what you find is people like uh, Sayyid Kuti and others in ha the, the, the Hawashi of the Mu'aqaf and things, they'll say, well, we're, we're a bit worried too, you know. Uh, perhaps this isn't the most Mu'addab way of talking about life. And then they pray that, you know, he forgives them for any su'adab that might yastad minhum accidentally in, in the process of their investigations. And of course, there are ways to understand the Ashri position, which are perfectly acceptable. I'm not saying that, but uh, um, this is a similar case in, in the sense that you're, when we talk about Allah SWT in his essence, of course, there's the famous hadith which says, think on the attributes, but do not think on the essence of Kamal Khal. Um, and so that's rather important. In a way, the Akbaris have the best solution to that, because when they talk about Allah SWT in his itlaq, they say he's absolutely 
unknowable in his essence as he really is in himself. Only he knows himself as he truly is in fullness, in his fullness. Um, we only know him through the way that he reveals himself to us. In any case, the so the the al-awwal, the first determination is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manifesting his nature in the most perfect madhar jami' which encompasses the realities of, of his essence but in something which is determinate when we think of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in himself his nature is infinite it's beyond anything we can grasp and, and even were we to be raised up to the high, highest levels we still wouldn't be able to grasp it uh, only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can grasp it but um, uh, in the in the the, the background to the process of creation, creation depended upon the haqqaiq of the essence becoming distinct. Allah Taala said kun to the ayan in his knowledge, and they had to be distinct. And the wahda is the bridge between the pure unknowability of the essence and the martabat al-wahidiyya when all of the haqqaiq which are the suwar of the asma i.e the ayana thabita become manifest distinctly that's a martabat al-wahidiyya and the bridge by which this takes place is is al-wahda which is and a determination of existence, the supreme determination of existence, which contained within it, as if as a uh, an embryonic form, as a seed, uh, all of the haqqaiq, which then, but 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 which aren't distinct in that particular martaba, but which in the next martaba, which is the level of the. Uh, uh, the ayana thabita or the fixed essences they become fully distinct um, and that's also the martaba in which the divine names become distinct it's not that they didn't exist in the essence but they become distinct um, and so this is also al-ta'ayyun athani so al-ta'ayyun athani is the ta'ayyun in which the uh, essences become distinct in their full multiplicity. Yeah, so it says here, Ta'ayun Athani, Hua Athani, Rotaba that, where here, a rotba to letty Tadharu Fihel Ashia, what a Tameyaz of the Horan, what a Mayus and Almian. Well, he had that to some Mahadi Hil Hadra be Hadrat al Maani, or be Alam al Maani, or be Hadra al Almia. So the second determination is the second degree of the essence. And this is the degree within which all things become manifest and become distinctly manifest. Uh, they, they, they become manifest, they become distinct. Uh, 
yeah, in a manifestation and a, and a, rend, a, a becoming distinct, which is sciential, is almiya. And this is why, this is why this hadra is called hadrat al-ma'ani, the presence of the, the meanings, literally, terrible translation, the world of meanings, and the sciential presence, al-hadra al-almiya. Now, this hadra simultaneously is the highest level of knowledge that the Mokashev can reach. They, 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 they can reach the, the level of knowledge of the of the um, the Ayana Thabita and the the supreme Ayn Thabit of which is Al-Haqiq al-Muhammadiyya, which is also identified with Al-Ta'in al-Awwal. Um, and so the Ta'ayun al-Thani branches out from Al-Ta'ayun al-Awwal and the Haqiq al-Muhammadiyya, atemporally, all of the essences in the Hadra al-Almiyya branch out from Al-Haqiq al-Muhammadiyya. He has the priority and the primacy. Um, so, and Sidi Man also mentioned that this is Al-Hadra al-Ama'iyya is identified with Al-Nafas al-Rahmani. And he says here, Mawlana al-Qashani, وَأَمَّا تَسْمِيَتُهُ بِالنَّفَسَ al-Rahmani فَذَلِكَ لِأَنَّ الْقَوْلَ إِنَّمَا يَكُونُ عِبَارَةٌ يكون عبارة عن نفس القول إنما يكون عبارة عن نفس من من منبعث من باطن المتنفس يتضمن معنى يطلب المتنفس ظهوره فيتعين ذلك النفس في مراتب المخارج. So why is it called the 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 breath of the of the all merciful? This is because an utterance is like a breath which arises from the in the inward of the the, the one breathing. Uh, and which includes in it a meaning which the person breathing uh, requires or, or, or wishes to seek for its becoming manifest such that the uh, breath becomes individuated in the degrees of the maharaj, the way that the haruf come out in the various parts of the uh, the, um, the 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 mouth, وكانت المحبة الأصلية and what's المحبة الأصلية? المحبة الأصلية is the referring to the Hadith Qudsi, كنتو كنزن مخفياً. فأحببت أن أعرف فخلقت الخلق فبي يعرفوني. Is that right? In any case, that's not a that's not a 
it's not considered a hadith in terms of, but it's very maqbul and al Um So, um, so al mahabba al-Asliya refers to that mahabba, which is the, 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 the love that Allah has, the, 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 the irada that he has to reveal himself. which is the capacity to become manifest. He says in this wonderful book. So the Mahabal Asliyah, um, yeah, so why is it appropriate to call it a nafas al-Rahmani? Because the ta'ayun al-Thani is the way in which that distinct creation, which Allah desires to know him, becomes manifest distinctly. Um, it's through that failed uh, uh, because the ta'ayun which is before it, the first determination, it's not, it has an equal relationship to al-batun, which is the hiddenness of the essence and the hoard, which is the appearing of the essence. In any case, um, in any case, uh, so, Now, there also, just as a, a, a terminological quibble, which you should also watch out for in Akbarianism, um, th th there are some people that you would find, uh, I had never heard what Sidi Man said about the Ama being identified with the Tayyun Atheni. Uh, and he's absolutely right, and it's absolutely everywhere. And that, that is the standard thing. Um, uh, so uh, I'm very grateful for that. But the, 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 there is another um, identification of it, which is made, which is that it's identified with, with al-Ama. And this seems to be uh, with al-Ahadiyya, sorry. So this seems to be uh, something which appears later on in the tradition. So if you look in the Kashaf of Tahanui, for example, he says, he first identifies it with the Lahadiyya. He says, but there's a, a, slight, a slight perspectival difference. فهي مقابلة الأحدية 
فهي مقابلة للأحدية and he says later on وفي التحفة المرسلة التحفة المرسلة by Burhan Puri is a very very important later um, text on the Haqiqa Muhammadi and, and the Akbarian Madhab it's absolutely fantastic book uh, very widely loved by the Mashayikh it's available as a PDF I highly, it's very short and a very brilliant and wonderful book لا بمعنى أن قيد الإطلاق ومفهوم سلب التعيين ثابتان في تلك المرتبة بل بمعنى أن ذلك الوجود في تلك المرتبة منزه عن إضافة جميع القروض إليه حتى عن قيد الإطلاق أيضا ويسمى بالمرتبة الأحدية and we have also in Qaysari, interestingly, because he's the student of Qashani, but he says, in the Muqaddimah, حقيقت الوجود إذا أخذت بشرط أن لا يكون معها شيء فهي المسمى عند القوم بالمرتبة الأحدية المستهلك جميع الأسماء وصفاته فيها وتسمى جمع الجمع وحقيقة الحقائق والعمى أيضا interestingly Malana, would you would you be able to read? We're all absolutely freezing here. <laughs> There's no heating. It's quite wonderful. Yeah. In logic, epistemology, and metaphysics, each of the foregoing examples, regardless of the particular difficulties they present for the task of identifying the nature of Nafsul Amr, share in a recognition of some sense of supersubjective super truth. This sense was, in the various schools of the Arabic and Islamic philosophical tradition, explored and validated through three main sets of specific questions pertaining to nafs al-amr or the thing as it is in itself by the way by the way um in itself is a mistake here we need to take it out cd cream will know all about that but uh talking about the thing as it in is in itself that's that's a leftover from an earlier stage of the paper and uh, it managed to creep in um but but after discussions we we realized that thing in itself is not really an appropriate translation of nafsulam which we might conveniently characterize as logical epistemological and metaphysical in the logical sphere this was chiefly the question of predicative scope has nafsul amr a wider predicative scope than the individuated world of experimental particulars al-khadij or the mind of zikr can the same proposition be true with regard to all of these loci of courage as different? Are the first two mutually exclusive? 
In cases in which they, in cases in which they correspond to Nafsul Amr, these questions will be treated in our discussion below of Sayyid Sharif al-Jurjani's famous treatise on Nafsul Amr. On a more properly metaphysical level of discourse, numerous questions arise. Can all types of existent quiddities and essences be said to be confined to extramental particulars and the mind? Or is it impossible for certain of them to be limited to these categories, such, as the such that the involvement of a third location becomes necessary, namely Nafsul Amr thus conceived? This is, this is a question we will examine during our consideration of Sa'duddin al-Taftazani's and al-Jurjani's respective discussions of real and relational composite quiddities. Can we stop there for now? Thank you. So um, you, you can stay if you don't mind, Siddi, because you say don't have to keep on coming back. Um, so essentially the... Oh. So essentially, the uh, the tartib of this book is to look at Nafs al in logic, epistemology, and metaphysics in a very broad sense. So in the logical sphere, this is the sphere. This is chiefly the question of predicative scope. So one of the important texts in this book is the text by the great 13th and 14th century, uh, 14th and 15th century Mutakallima Sayyidah Sharif al-Jurjani, which is his Risala fi Tahqiq Ma'ana Nafs al-Amr, which is um, um, uh, uh, essentially a logical text. It's a, it's a well-known text and you, you find it in, there's a lot of reference to it in various um, uh, who, who followed Sayyid Sharif. So, um, so that is something that we'll discuss in the next section after this introduction. Um, and this is the question after the historical question, uh, the historical section. Um, and this is the question that of, of of the relationship between the logical relationship between al Kharij, al Zihn, and Nafs al Amr. So, while we know that anything which is true for al Kharij is also true for Zihn necessarily, and is also true for Nafs al Amr necessarily, it also happens to be the case, which is very crucial for our whole mode of investigation, that you can have something which is true for then, which is not true for Kharij. Anything which is true for then will have to be true for Nafs al-Amr, because actually everything which is true is true for Nafs al-Amr. But there are some things which are true for then and are not true for Al-Kharij. So, and, and that, of course, is the fundamental problem we're dealing with, you know, in a kind of uh, positivist framework, a, a verificationist framework, there's no problem of nafs al-amr in the first place because everything that you can say just has an empirical reference that you can point to and that's all there is to it. And then they say, well, metaphysics is literally nonsense. Um, it doesn't refer to anything, it doesn't, uh, and, and, and unfortunately they, they, they include all of theology in that. And that's a very outmoded way of thinking, which is actually was formally discredited in academic philosophy 
But the interesting thing is that it's still dominant in a funny way. Um, that's largely because of people like Quine, who became very influential, who, though they repudiated the Vienna Circle, they still, they kind of found a, frankly, a more Habith way to still perpetuate it without making themselves look like they still subscribe to something silly. Um, so that's the, a question that we'll deal with, which is fundamentally a, a, a logical question, in, at least in terms of its important expression. And then on a more properly metaphysical level of discourse, this is later on, uh, numerous questions arise, arise. Can all types of existent quiddities and essences be said to be confined to extramental particulars in the mind? Can there be an essence which is not just a, a hypothesis, so, you know, maybe there's a, a phoenix. No, not at all. Can there be essences which if we look carefully at the world, we look carefully at what must be in place for there to be a world, for there to be minds interacting with each other, um, for there to be knowledge of the world, which is real knowledge, must there be something in place, something that really exists, which is beyond both particular individual things and anything that we can say becomes manifest imminently in a human mind. There must be something about reality which is beyond the particular, uh, uh, which is dis distinct and existent, but not particular, and in the sense of individuated under a species, um, and uh, that um, uh, is not uh, uh, one of the, it's not a mental phenomenon either may become manifest in the mind, but its primary reality and ultimate reality is not mental, as in, in an individual mind. Um, or is it impossible for certain of them to be limited to these categories such that the, the invocation of a third location becomes necessary, namely nafs al-amr thus conceived? This is a question we will examine during our, during our consideration of Sa'aduddin al-Taftazani and al-Jurjani's respective discussions of real and relational composite quiddities, al-mahiyyat, al-murakkab, al-haqiqiyya, wal-idhafiyya. And there we find that, well, certainly verificationism, but even in our own understanding, the idea that for example, even when the thing you're talking about is a Kharaji thing, like I am sitting on this chair, even that is, has huge difficulties when you try to account for the truth of that statement using only, using elements, reference, which are strictly Kharaji. And that's because of things like relations and so on, which necessarily enter into the proper, the full intelligibility, even of Kharaji entities, but which are actually themselves can't be construed as, as Kharaji entities, individuated entities in any way. They're actually a, a kind of intelligible framework that we fit into in the world. Um, so that's that section. Then, yeah, can we go on to the metaphysical topic? The metaphysical, the metaphysical topic. Try and shout, Habibi, I'm so sorry, try and shout. The metaphysical topic most central to this study, however, is the serious challenge posed by intelligible abstract entities and truths, and indeed the very concept of truth. 
to the notion that, broadly put, the truth of a proposition is merely its correspondence to sensible and mental phenomena. The tension becomes particularly acute when we consider the possible subjectivist implication of positing that the mind is the original locus of these intelligible objects and truths. We will meet with formulations of and solutions to this and related problems by Fakhruddin al-Razi, Ibn Bahauddin, and Tashko Prozada, uh, Ismail Galambavi, and others. On the ontological level, we are faced with the problem of the positive identification of nafs al Is it an actual level or degree of being, a world in and of itself? In answering this question, Nasir al-Din al-Tusi and, uh, and especially Dawood al-Qaysari have put forward influential theories. One of the most comprehensive of, of all answers to the question was that offered by the Ottoman sage Tashku Puzadeh, who synthesized aspects of Avicenna and Akbarian thought to provide a theory that accounts for numerous related philosophical issues, such as the question of how the concept of nafs al relates to the notion of exemplary forms, as well as to abstraction theory. Can we just stop there, Marlena? Thank you so much. So, um, but the metaphysical topic most central to this study is the serious challenge posed by intelligible so-called abstract entities. We read earlier that abstract, or it's in an early note, if you want to have a look where the abstract is not really the right term, but it's, it's kind of, it will do. Um, abstract entities and truths, indeed the very concept of truth to the notion that broadly put, the truth of a proposition is merely its correspondence to sensible and mental phenomena. Truth as correspondence, the correspondence theory, as opposed a broad theory in philosophy, as opposed to the coherence theory, the or, or other theories, the no truth theory, the deflationary theory, but the correspondence theory is broadly, it is, I mean, it's, it's not really anachronistic to say it is, you know, this broad theory is a correspondence theory. On higher levels, you'd say, no, it's an identity theory. What is a correspondence theory? Correspondence theory is the idea that what you're trying to account for are how propositions can be true. So propositions don't have to be written down. I'm just waiting for it to stop saying my internet connection. Propositions don't have to be sentences. They, they're, they're intelligible entities. You can just think them um, and they're, they're uh, they're accessible to anyone who has a mind um, and with, without getting into issues of that, you know, timelessness and existing in a special realm and whatever it happens to be. But um, uh, propositions are, are intelligible entities which express truths, which can become, can be uh, put into language. Um, so, um, so now, so correspondence theory, that's what I was talking about. So correspondence theory very broadly is simply the idea that what is it that makes our propositions true? Well, it's that they correspond to something extra mental, I mean, everything you say is problematic. They, they correspond to something extramental. They correspond to real being that in some way, which you then, we say is the truth maker of, of that particular truth. So, you know, it's various modes of expression or possible modes of expression. Um, so the correspondence is, is basically the proposition corresponds to how things really are. 
MHC. And that, of course, exactly what it says, in, and this is a very standard thing in our tradition, so the truth of a proposition is it's corresponding to nafs al-amr. Question then becomes, well, what is nafs al-amr? As we saw last time in a common sense view, let's say in fit, they say, you know, if he's really telling the truth in nafs al-amr about his dame, then great. In that case, nafs al-amr, he's not thinking about metaphysical theories, nor should he waste his time on such things because he's busy doing fit. If he starts getting worried about what nafs al-amr is at that point, then he's not going to get very far with his uh, legal career. So, uh, and it's the same with uh, with Ibn Kathir. Um, uh, you know, although that's a more advanced one, might, metaphysically advanced level of discourse, because he's talking about you know what is really God's law. You know, the the faqih or the mufti or the mujtahid, they might they they say what they think God's law is, but it might not really be God's law. They might be wrong. According to certain views, um, there are some who might say uh, otherwise. But in any case, um, so that is uh, 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 broadly a correspondence theory. I mean, a coherence theory, which come, we'll see with Kant, and really comes in with Kant, according to Norman Kemp's myth, is um, the idea that there's no, you know, there's a paradox involved in the idea that propositions have to correspond to anything outside of themselves. Um, because that kind of, it, 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 you know, there can't really be anything outside of our representation. So you're trying to say there's this realm which hypothetically isn't inside our representation and then our representation has to correspond to it somehow. And that doesn't make <laughs> sense. So they come up with, uh, according to them, they come up with this coherence theory, which is when you look at the disparate elements of cognition and you find that they are all fitting together coherently, then you say that the thing is true. So in Kant's case, you know, that's when you get the concept of uh, the, the, the categories and concepts of the understanding, the categories of the understanding, which are the concepts, um, and they cohere with uh, the uh, intuitions, which are the, the which is the, the forms of time and space, which are the forms of sensibility. And you have all of those things sitting there together exactly as Kant would like. And then it's true because uh, that's just, those are the components of, of, the, the, of, of the apparatuses of human cognition, which actually have objects because he would say reason doesn't have a, a real, the, the pure use of reason, which is the way that traditional metaphysicians used reason doesn't actually have an object. So you need an intuition, which gives you an empirical aspect and then uh and it gives the form to the to the um the matter of sensibility which is uh, uh which is sensation so time and space is the form of sensibility which renders pure sensation intelligible but they're all imposed upon the object um and then the categories render things intelligible relationally we'll go into Kant in some detail and I hope for anyone who's not familiar with Kant, that will be, you know, ticking the Kant box. Because if you have Kant just, you know, looming there in the background your entire life, you don't know quite what he's up to, uh, it's problematic. And also he's so influential and, and one finds that really Kant is the way that modern people think. And that is, that's how, you know, you'll find that everywhere. But he's the one who's really going for it theoretically and trying to show 
So he says, no, coherentism, there's no correspondence. There's just the coherence of the apparatuses above cognition. Then on the level of, of identity, you'd say, no, the proposition is in some real sense, the, 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 rep the intelligible representation for what, I mean, it's not the cognition, is the same as the object. But that doesn't mean we're in idealism here. It might mean, for example, that the agent intellect is providing uh, intelligibility to both of them. And so they are in some sense the same or an identity theory and other identity theories can be that we as knowing subjects, as we become purified in the path of knowledge, we become identical to the objects of our knowledge because of our shared derivation of our being from metaphysical principles. There's all sorts of different ways to look at it. Um, so the metaphysical topic most central to this study is the serious challenge posed by intelligible abstract entities and truths, indeed to the very concept of truth, to the notion that broadly put the truth of the phenomenon is many its correspondence. Exactly. So what is truth? if it's just about imminent experience. It's just that I see that this thing corresponds to something I'm experiencing. <clears throat> so what does it mean? It's, what, why is it true? You know, I'm experiencing, to give one of my very unimaginative examples, I'm experiencing one plus one equals two, just as much as I'm experiencing one plus one equals 79. I'm experiencing that, am I experiencing that? But why is one true and one is false if all there is is empirical particulars and mental phenomena? How does that work? And, and this is indeed a line of argument that uh, Arlamat um, uh, treat in a very remarkable way, uh, particularly starting with, uh, well, that particular argument is Nasir in a Tulsi, but he's following Fakhrudin Razi in the most important aspects of that. Sorry, Shekhar, you, you mentioned- hold it up so you don't have to Sorry, you mentioned deflationary theory as well, which I believe is one of the more prominent uh, theories of truth these days. Could you yeah. just quickly explain what that is, if that's possible? If not, you could relegate it to another no, time. No, no, no. I can, but it's so ridiculous that you won't believe it. So the, uh, the, the deflationary theory of truth is also called the no truth theory. And this is one of Quine's brilliant, brilliant ideas, which is that the truth of a uh, proposition is identical to its assertion. Why? Why not? <laughs> Why not? It fits into you know naturalism and you know the whole world being neural impulses and us just being these accidental mutations much better um, because the, the problem of truth is a is a is a very serious problem for the naturalist. I mean, it's an insoluble problem. It's a, it's just you know, it's crying out to them about the existence of a metaphysical realm. And so, yeah, the no, the deflationary theory or the no truth theory basically means that the truth of a proposition 
is identical to its assertion. And, you know, there, there, there are sophistical complexities there, of course. But thank you for that. So, um, so the tension becomes particularly acute when we consider the possible subjectivist implication of positing that the mind is the original locus of these internal objects and truths. Well, if it's the original locus of uh, what we consider to be truths uh, about the world, uh, about the general metaphysical nature of things, um, you know, that there are substances, that there are relations between things that there are uh, whatever it happens to be um then uh then obviously the subjectivist implications are very strong if the ultimate locus of all this is the mind individual minds then we have no way of of seeing beyond that imminent reality to um oh i mean you know this is al fard the fard is that these are purely mental so if you want to stay within that fard, then uh, it's, there's a subjectivist implication. Um, we will meet with formulations of and solutions to this in related problems by Fakhuddin Razi is very important in this, Ibn Bahaddin, Toshko Prezad is very important, Ismail Galembui has beautiful things on this and others. On the ontolog ontological level, we are faced with the problem of the positive identification of Nasir Amr. Is it an actual level or degree of being, the world of truth and reality, a world in and of itself? Why? Because we, we don't find all of the elements of intelligibility in the extramental particular, just not there. And we don't, we can't say that they're just the mind because then we'd have the implication of subjectivism. And also we wouldn't be able to distinguish between true and false mental propositions. If they're true by being mental, then true and false propositions are equally mental. You've appeared, Sidi Mustafa. Is that because you wanted to say something or did you your elbow uh, accidentally turn on the camera? No, I've been on line for all this time Ustad. I've the video has been on I don't know maybe sometimes zoom put some people at the oh right right no, just I don't know. lovely to see you Shukram. I've been here all this time thank you Alhamdulillah um, is it an actual level or degree of being a world in and of itself if this world doesn't contain what would be necessary for a realm of of truth and reality and the mind can't provide that then Perhaps when we say, when, when we utter truths, this is because we are participating thereby or making contact with or having it to solve with, there's a kind of conjunction that we have with a world of truth and real being that then becomes filtered down into this changing world of flux and, and matter and, and huzun. So um, yes, so you know Tashko Brazada synthesized aspects of Avicenna Akbarian thought 
and so on. So we'll see that all coming, inshallah. So here we go, there can be little doubt. And then we get to the notes, Sidi, I'll read the notes, because there's about four notes in a row I wanted to read. There can be little doubt that we live today in a world in which traditional metaphysics as the universal science that critically specifies the general principles of all other sciences and guarantees their coherence and objectivity has been almost entirely relegated to the status of historical curiosity, if not forgotten altogether. Okay, let's, let's do 24 here. Yeah, 34. For an agreeably thorough contemporary account of the Aristotelian roots of the concept of a universal science, see T.H. Irwin, Aristotle's First Principles. For the even deeper Platonic roots, see Hans Joachim Kramer, Plato and the Foundations of Metaphysics, a work on the theory of the principles and unwritten doctrines of Plato with a collection of the fundamental documents, 77 to 91, and especially 83 to 89. See also our exposition of the ontological foundations of the transcendentals with Platonic Akbarian humble correctives in chapter four. For Avicenna's own exposition of his conception of universal, universal science upon which late Islamic conceptions are largely based, very, very important to our tradition. You'll see largely mirrored in the beginnings of Shad al-Mark and Shad al-Makhazid. See Avicenna's al-Shifa al-Ilahiyat one, for two important later Kalam expositions, that you, although you can use uh, Marmora's um, uh, good translation, parallel English Arabic. Well, it's parallel English Arabic anyway, it's, it's, it's fairly serviceable. For two important later Kalam expositions that identify many of the attributes of the concept of universal science with Kalam, see Taftazani Shad Maqasid, volume 1, 5 to 15. That's the old edition. In this bibliography, and uh, Shafi Mawapif uh, 32 to 61, and also Tahanami Kashaf under Al Ilm Al Ilahi. Sorry, Melana. Oh, no, you already you, you got up to so. Then number 35. So this is important for us because, you know, the notion that universal science is critically specifies the general principles of all the other sciences. And this is something that Maulana, Dr. Kareem, who wrote The Anatomy of Knowledge, hugely inspired us with when we began this project, this notion of the subordination, the subalternation of the sciences, Tartibul Ulum. I mean, this project is called Tartibul Ulum. Um, just notice someone left the meeting room when I said that. I hope it wasn't cream. No, he's still there. Thank God. Um, the, um, uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, the, this notion had been forgotten. Hasab Marifati in the Islamic tradition. I didn't know any, I mean, I'd never heard anyone say anything about it. Um, and, uh, and I'm very glad to say that now everyone's talking about it. So that's, that's absolutely wonderful. Um, and um, and that's exactly what we want. So uh, 35. So this has been forgotten. 34. For an agreeably thorough contemporary account of the Aristotelian roots of the concept. No, not that one. Oh, no, sorry. This isn't the one I thought. 
If it be objected that metaphysics as a branch of modern philosophy is alive and well, it should be emphasized that the operational reality of modern academic metaphysics is so marred by its having adopted, quite without justification, a universal and dogmatically unresolvable skepticism as to the nature and validity of first principles that is unable to make any real progress, nor indeed even approach being adequate to the role detailed above of traditional metaphysics. Now, this again comes back to one of the things that Sidi Cream talks about in his paper, which is psychological disposition. And this is something you see very strongly. You know, one of the lies of modernity is that it's very objective and dispassionate, which is that, you know, pretty much the exact opposite of what it really is. Um, I mean, it's really the most anti-reason in any substantive sense. I mean, the anti-intellectual movement in history, and yet it manages to rhetorically present itself as paragon of uh, the, the standard barriers of rationality and reason. But modern metaphysics is, is a disastrous case because it deliberately will never get anywhere. You see, it deliberately will never get anywhere. As soon as you sees you trying to get somewhere and actually reach a conclusion, a substantive metaphysics, they say, no, 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 we, you know, there's skepticism. There are people who have said that this is uncertain. There are people who have said this sentence. There are, so it would be very unsophisticated of you to build any, because there are people who have, you know, this great academic, he said, principle of non-contradiction is not even uh, true. Of course, in saying that, he's using the principle of non-contradiction. And, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there's a methodological skepticism, which you find almost everywhere. And then there are some thinkers who just break through that and they tell people how it is. And then, and then they fall victim to the kind of relativist postmodern framework, which is that, yes, these are all different points of view and they should all be respected. But ultimately, you know, it's just his culture or it's just his proclivity or it's just whatever it happens to be. So, um, so that's that now. <clears throat> Can we go on, Sidi, from the consequence of the, the consequent absence? The consequent absence of universal, universally acknowledged first principles required to assure the fundamental intelligibility and indeed objectivity of debate matters philosophical is, although this is really explicitly acknowledged, certainly very sorely felt by those aspiring to have philosophy, philosophy taken seriously as science once more. Hmm. So prominent exceptions in the relatively recent Islamic intellectual world in which this absence of principles is less pronounced include Sheikh al-Islam Mustafa Sabri's Sabri in his Mawqaf al-Aqal wal-Alim al-Alam min Rabbil Alamin wa Ibadih al-Mursaleen and Ismail Hakka al-Zmirli in his Yeni Ilmi Kalam. Uh, and the loss of first principles was also a key feature of the broadly neo-scholastic diagnosis of modern philosophical infirmity. See, for example, example Reginald, Gary Lagrange, Reality, uh, and Gilson, The Unity of Philosophical Experience. And then there's other stuff. Thank you, Sidi. For the for the academic mainstream in, Europe, in the European Middle Ages and in the Islamic world for long after that period, broadly Avicennan metaphysics or first philosophy was supreme. Indeed, the most scientific of all sciences, its principles serving as the theoretical underpinnings for all of the other sciences. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, yeah, thank you. This was not taken to imply, not in the Islamic world nor in medieval Europe, that first philosophy was an essentially higher science than the sacred sciences of revelation. Rather, so this is really a, a, a question of directionality. Rather, the principles of first philosophy merely constitute the, albeit ontologically grounded, epistemological preconditions for any form of science. So this is just about you know, what we are as human beings, as knowing subjects when we encounter the revelation. It is not in any form of competition with the revelation, Hasha. The object of an epistemologically subordinate science, however, may be immeasurably superior to that of the epistemologically highest science. The science of Quranic exegesis, for example, studies the divinely revealed scripture, which is a manifestation of one of the attributes, divine speech of God. However, procedurally, ex exegesis presupposes the foundations and assumptions laid by Kalam with its metaphysical underpinnings. For a discussion that briefly touches on some of these points and shows how Quranic exegesis and Kalam can both claim to be, from different perspectives, the highest science, see, see Al-Alusi, Alusi's own introduction to his Ruh al-Mani. Volume 125. This predominance continued in the West and held the decline of scholasticism and the rise of the corpuscularian natural philosophy in the 17th century. And in the Islamic world before the destruction in the late 19th and early 20th centuries of the traditional curricula in the great learning centers of learning, such as Al-Azhar in Egypt, Farangi Mahal in India and the Madrasas of Ottoman Turkey and Iraq. Yes. The signing into law by the Committee of Union and Progress. So these are the, the gang who succeeded Abdul Hamid Athani, uh, radiallahu anhu. The Ottoman reform of the Madrasas bill in 1914 put the survival of the traditional Islamic sciences in great danger. Students were now to study Western natural sciences and sociology and the traditional subjects were vastly truncated. See Amit Bain, Ottoman Alamat, Turkish Republic, agents of change and guardians of tradition. The reforms were not to last long, however, before an event took place even more disastrous for the survival of the traditional curriculum, the dissolution of the Ottoman state itself, 1922. A similar decline occurred in post-Mughal India, especially with the disintegration of Farangi Mahal, see Francis Robertson, Darlamat, Frangi Mahal, and Islamic culture in South Asia. And the rise of Deobandism, a phenomenon whose scholastic reforms were largely opposed by the traditional scholars of India. For example, explaining the remarkable intellectual power and openness that the traditional Akaliyat curriculum provided students, one of the last of these prominent traditional scholars, Abdul Bari Farangi Mahal, said, He's saying it, not me. Said, would you rather have it that students became like sheep, like the alumni of Deoband, or people whose knowledge is superficial, like those from the Nadwa since Shibli's death, uh, or those who belong to the Ahl al-Hadith in Delhi? At Al-Azhar, as elsewhere, the intellectual sciences, Aqliyat, were certainly the most sharply affected by the almost universal waning of the Islamic sciences throughout the Sunni world at the beginning of the 20th century. 
The 1911 reforms of the Azhari curriculum signaled the end of study of advanced philosophical works of metaphysical kalam like Satadin Tafsir and their replacement by far more basic books like Johar Tawheed, Al Kharida, and Umm al Barahin. And then there's various references. Now, just a moment because. Okay, uh, let's just read this, this last paragraph. I want to finish on time today, haram, because people, Yani, we, should, we shouldn't keep people. So if we just read the rest of that, Sidi, and just um, up to here, that would be great, thanks. Basic insights that makes the concept of nafsul amr so critical, and that, the, and that most of the, of the, and that most of the developed theories of nafs al-amr we will considering we will be considering sharing is that although the although truth claims of whatever kind are doubtless mind dependent in terms of their mental formulation and subsistence their truth or otherwise is something that cannot be accounted for by the mind in isolation this is because the mind is not the ultimate source of the abstract and universal concepts and first principles that inform each instance of human knowing Likewise, the mind possesses no faculty whereby it can self-verify the modes of cognition in which it is naturally equipped, without intuiting its, ontolo its true ontological status as the, as the limiting locus of truths which emanate from, the, from an experimental, intelligible domain. The human mind imprisoned within itself must give in to subjectivity. It is only by discerning the congruity or discordance of the mental phenomena responsible for the formulation of these truth claims which manifestly experimentally with manifestly sorry. Uh, with sorry uh, of these truth bomb, claims, not of these truth claims with manifestly experimental phenomena that this implication of subjectivism can be avoided and it is then that the question of the scope of the experimental arises thank you city and then this point notwithstanding it is also important in order to bring the question of said to sharper relief that is distinguished from another form of truth justification the question of the ontological justification of the sciences, Nafsal Amr, here broadly speaking in correspondence theory, is distinct from that of the internal justification of the sciences in modern parlance, i.e. the foundationalist theory. 39. So when it says, and it is then that the question of the scope of the extramental arises, note 39, that is, whether it is limited to the world of extramental particulars, or contrarily, that it is not limited to extramental particulars, but encompasses a vast domain of distinct intelligible realities that is prior to extramental particulars, and of which the world of extramental particulars constitutes a mere restricting particularization. So we've got 25 minutes for our discussion. Uh, Sidi Aslanuddin, how does one counter to one who argues that God needs to, needed to create the world so he is deficient? Well, in the Ash'ari madhab, Af'alullah uh, ghayru mu'allalatin bil agrad. So Allah subhanahu wa creation is not motivated by objectives or aims or, um, or wanting to achieve something um, in the way that finite beings when they do something that they're trying to achieve something they don't have 
according to all Muslims, Allah He doesn't require anything. He doesn't need to create the world. However, there are tafasil when it comes to the difference between the Ashri and Akbari position. Um, when, but I don't think I'll go into it right now. Uh, uh, we may be able to go into it later. My question arises because the, uh, the uh, Hadith Qudsi that you mentioned, yeah. uh, that seems to be implying that there is a need of Pakka. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can you just look at it externally. Yeah. Well, sorry to put it like this, but yes, that's true. But Allah on the Akbari Madhab, the Akbari understanding is Oh, goodbye, George. Allah is um, he, he is there's nothing outside of Allah that has real being. He, he is the only real being and everything else is a theophany of him. And this is a, an atemporal process. So we're talking about something out of body. So everything is already contained in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We're not saying he required, you know, he had something that he wanted and then he had to create the world so he could get what he wanted, hasha, hasha and then he created, but we're, but we're talking a, 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 about an understanding of the d different domains and degrees, the love that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has for the maratib, of his of his creation, the love that Allah has for himself, containing within himself all things. So he 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 already possesses everything. He possesses everything already in knowledge. He possesses everything already in creation. So that's not talking about a temporal unfolding or a need. It's talking about the different maratib of his. Um, uh, of his uh, and of his zuhur and the love that he has for those various maratib, but there are tafasil. I mean, the yeah, there, there there's some very interesting things. I don't want to get into it right now. Well, inshallah, we will in the lab. Did someone have their hand up? Sorry, can you hear me? I can. Let me pin you. Okay. Okay. Um, I wish we had yeah. a, like a big screen or something. So we could, maybe I'll bring one next time. I really need to use a. Uh, uh, sorry, Marlana, let, let me just organize this. Um, ah. Oh, there's Mohammed Sami. Shadow City. Yeah, first of all, uh, I'm definitely not a Marlana, so. Uh, 
Don't say that. It, it, it would be better to say mole Anna. But, <laughs> um, but anyway. We're all um, mole Anna's here, Habib. That's what I love about this. So. <laughs> it can be anything you want to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, my question had to do, you said something I think I found a little bit interesting in terms of the idea that, um, the, I think you said it a little earlier, about the fact that in academic circles, the, the Quine's idea uh, and this kind of empiricist um, framework, uh, this positive framework um, has basically been discredited and outmoded. And um, so, I mean, I, I couldn't, from what very little I'm familiar with, you know, in the discussions in, in you know, um, circles of uh, philosophy of mathematics, yeah. I have heard that that is the case that, you know, realism is basically still a kind of a, you know, um, is, is more prominent than the other schools that might adhere to this type of a framework. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, a, uh, I'm not, I don't know, frankly, um, that uh, uh, of this being outmoded uh, in the other uh, fields of the natural sciences. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious about any, I don't know, titles or oh, yeah, um, yeah. authors or, you know, uh, who have very forcefully kind of discredited and outmoded, uh, oh, yeah. so to speak, yeah. you know, this empiricist yeah. framework yeah. in some of the other, you know, let's say, we'll call them for now the modern natural sciences. Absolutely, Maulana. Thank you. Um, the thing is, um, this is uh, a partic very particular thing I'm talking about. So this is not empiricism in any broad sense, it's verificationism. Okay. Um, and this is a uh, position that was put forward by a member of the Vienna Circle, A.J. Ayer, who was, you know, for, for Yonks, was the professor of, of a major a prominent professor of philosophy at Oxford University. And he was one of the um, most prominent, uh, along with Carnap and, and others, um, and then later you have Quine, who kind of gives a pragmatist version, uh, adherent or, or, or representatives of, the, of, of uh, logical positivism. Um, and the verification theory was simply the notion that um, which he put forward in, I think, his book, Truth, Language and Logic, when he was, I think he wrote when he was 25 years old, AJ. Um, he put forward this theory that was very influential and just sounded wonderful to people at the time, which was that, um, uh, that for a proposition to be meaningful and true, it has to have an empirical referent. And so what you what we need to do, we have we need to have a program according to this view where we take the propositions of the sciences, of philosophy, of whatever it happens to be, of ethics, and we we have to somehow ground them in an empirical particular, in, in what is ultimately a sense impression. Um, and so of course. In the natural sciences, there are all sorts of statements, as you know, which do not have, you know, clearly, they do not straightforwardly have empirical reference. There's no sensation involved in a lot of the theoretical apparatuses of, let's say, uh, modern physics. Um, 
and uh, and so you know they, they had this program which in, in some sense or other insisted that there has to be and so there were there were met there were ways of kind of mediating that well yes it, it when you look at it, it doesn't seem to refer to an empirical particular but but in this way or other it's reducible to an empirical particular that's what it really is mm -hmm. um and so this was a very um popular theory i believe in the the 30s and 40s um in the kind of heyday of of uh of of logical positive the vienna group and uh, and and people like Carnap and and, and aj air and massively a lot of the names have disappeared from my mind just for the moment but uh, the vienna circle of course are very well known and um and this is one of those examples in philosophical history where a theory is actually categorically proved to be false and everyone agrees it even the person who came up with the theory which is aj and he had to come up with a kind of weaker version of the verification theory but the, how did they disprove it because this is, you know, this is quite a, an interesting. Does anyone know? Sorry to make it a. Uh, does anyone, anyone present know? Sidi, Sidi, most of us Yeah, I thought you did. Go on. I mean, I don't know if I do it, but like just a try. I guess one of the thing was that some of its principles themselves don't stand the test. That the, they don't meet the criterion that it stipulates that all meaningful assertions have to meet. Thank you very much. And Hamza Hashmi also said it in the note. The verification theory can't be verified. So the verification theory itself, where's the empirical reference? Huh? Come on, give me an empirical reference for your verification principle. Bueno. Give me the empirical reference for the verification principle itself. And I, that is really how, how it happened. And it, it, it's, a, you know, it's something you can look up in philosophical history. But it hasn't stopped people from... Um, so, Sidi, now, do I have uh, references for how it got disproved? I can't... Uh, um, oh, that's, I, that, that's sufficient. I mean, I, yeah, I can't, I can't think. But you, but you can look it up and you'll find the whole debate sure. and how it unfolded. But thank you very much. But, but you know, what I'm trying to say... Um, Oh, here we go. Sachi Moritz Schlick is the main influence in A. You can see the full intention of verification there. Very nice. Thank you, Sidi. Um, yeah. Sidi Zakhmalar. Sidi, just one interesting thing about A.J. Ayer, which mm. is as a philosopher, he was discredited at Oxford and many other places, definitely around the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is outside of the philosophy department, he was very influential, for example, in the philosophy of law mm. and, and influential in the thinkers that actually dominated the philosophy of law. Mm. People like Hart and, and others uh, at Oxford. So um, he had a nefarious influence way beyond the philosophical school. Oh, so you... In the social sciences, for example, and elsewhere. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, oh, I, where, I remember where, you where things are not questioned philosophically mm. but are postulated philosophically and that's an interesting way of how this kind of poison spreads yeah yeah mm. yeah he 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 explicitly i've seen there's a very interesting series of videos that were kind of made in the 1970s about philosophy 
and they used to make interesting television programs back then which is with some serious content, but they had him and Bernard Williams. And he explicitly says, foundations in metaphysics are completely arbitrary. You just have to make a choice um, about where you're gonna start and, and just go from there. Um, I remember you talk about AJ Eyre a little bit in your being good. So, alaikum bihi, it's a wonderful little look, being good. Um, uh, is your hand still up, Mustafa Aziz? Very sorry. No, I should have lowered it. My apologies. Oh, sorry. sorry. Um, so anyway, you know, these views, because of the psychological, the, the, the kind of governing psychological dispositions of the age, these, what are basically verificationist views, are still going absolutely strong. Um, you get just get more Khabith and frankly, Khabith and sophisticated versions of them. So, you know, uh, Quine was trained directly by the Vienna Circle and he was the golden boy, essentially. And um, But he knew that he couldn't keep on putting forward something so primitive. So, I mean, if you want a grotesque, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, there's no other way to say it, a grotesque uh, vision of the world and of philosophy, Look no further than the philosophy of Quine. It doesn't get worse than that. I really don't think it gets worse than that. You know, behaviorism plus pragmatism um, and plus methodological skepticism and 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 just pure sophistry. Um, that's what you get with Quine, and he's probably the most influential or one of the most influential. <laughs> philosophers of the last 50 years, but he essentially perpetuate and, and, and scientism plus a bit of scientism, throw in a bit of scientism. So, you know, um, uh, he tries to create a full uh, naturalism, of course, a full naturalistic picture of the way that, you know, not knowledge works, um, which is basically in line with the Vienna school, but he it's less straightforward than that kind of simple verification is empiricism. He, what he, what he, the, the way that he achieves that is basically by turning it into a, a, a pragmatist doctrine at base, which is you know, broadly the notion that uh, we're not really saying that anything is true. We're, we're just talking about the uh, practical use that it has within building a certain theory because of. Um, uh, Yani, the the fatida that that brings to the construction of our system, um, the way that you know our best um, scientific theories um, are, uh, uh, you know, whatever that's supposed to be. Everyone nods wisely when we say our best scientific theories. It's like, what? What best scientific theories? You know. They're all, they all presuppose uh, metaphysical assumptions, which, you know, they, can either, they could either be true or false, and they have to be evaluated on the appropriate metaphysical level. But someone like Quine wants to subordinate metaphysics or, or, or what, you know, he would have great difficulty calling it metaphysics, but he would probably 
reluctantly call it metaphysics eventually, uh, to, to uh, our best um, scientific theories, so that the science of, uh, essentially becomes the handmaiden of, uh, philosophy essentially becomes the handmaiden of, of, uh, of empirical science. If you look at note five, um, no, it's not note five, sorry. Quine does appear there as well, but um, yeah. W.V. Quine, note eight of, of the introduction developed the philosophy of the Vienna circle into his own nominalist, deflationist, behaviorist, and scientist anti-system, and who celebrated what he viewed as one of the main achievements of empiricism after 1800, namely, quote, naturalism, abandonment of the goal of a first philosophy prior to natural science. Is there someone who has their hand up? Was that accidental again, Sidi Mustafa? Uh, no, just a small uh, thing about, like, since you were mentioning Quine, um, I just, from my experience, and I was forced to read him for a course as well, a little bit of his thought. I also, from our last discussion, um, I was reminded of Dr. Green's point about psychological disposition. I think one element that's really key in the psychological disposition of coin is something that he's inheriting from a kind of uh, much uh, older historical uh, legacy maybe which is this idea that uh, it's been around since Descartes, Hobbes, Locke, Hume and certainly Kant himself the idea that traditional metaphysics the metaphysics of essence the view that our cognitive structures stand in a deep community with their objects that we catch reality as it is intellectual intuition etc the metaphysics that is in this kind of orientation is essentially a an endless uh, history of disputes so conflict and dispute and nobody can agree with anybody that's what Carnap also felt so there's this very uh, patent sense in this Anglo-American, but also in some sense, French Descartes are part of it, tradition that traditional metaphysics is just senseless, mindless disagreement. And we, we get sobriety with, with kind of the kind of empiricism. So I, I think that's also, I think that's one of the psychological or maybe historical presuppositions of most of their work. That's just a thought that came to my mind. They think that traditional metaphysicians are just idiotically just, you know, talking about things that can't be answered or something. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah thank you so much, my friend. Sidi, uh, and his wonderful brother, Taymor, I think maybe the first um, Muslim siblings to ever both study philosophy at Harvard. Uh, go on, Maulana. Uh, oh, Sidi Ahmad, uh, do you have your hand up? Yeah, actually I do. Um, oh. Just turn the video here. Um, How wonderful. So like, 
Since I'm quine bashing, I thought I would join. I happened to study with somebody who studied with quine for uh, and and what uh, what quine did is you, you really need to get very clear on this because the implications of quine's work are tremendous. Um, you know, analytic philosophy begins actually as anti-naturalist. And that's what needs to be understood. Like when you look at Frege, when you look at Russell, the early analytic philosophers are actually anti-naturalists, whether it's anti-psychologism or for a logicism, they're, they're very much against that kind of thing. Um, but today, analytic philosophy is defined by its naturalism. How did it get that way? Well, really Quine is central to this major twist in the history of analytic philosophy where naturalism becomes acceptable along with the kind of pragmatism as C.D. Hessen Hus was mentioning. But I think that's, it's very important to realize that basically naturalism has won um, uh, in what's called analytic philosophy in the analytic tradition. And that has a lot to do with Quine. On the other hand, Quine, for, for many very hardcore logician type philosophers, um, so like some people that I've worked with, Quine is thought of as a little bit of a, a, a not taken very seriously. Um, and so there is a sort of a, a regiment in analytic philosophy that are more like logicist oriented and they don't take Quine very seriously and their, their attacks against Quine are, are very, are quite devastating. So there are some great internal critiques of Quine's work and of what Quine stands for. But at the end of the day, he's he's actually won out in the in the tradition. As to the as to this as to uh, this um, 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 sort of issuing metaphysics, uh, this has a long history, um, but it really takes off in a new form, actually, in a new radicalized form, at the at the beginning of the twentieth century with the rise of analytic philosophy, where basically one of their uh, fundamental premises in their tradition, like in what they describe as who they are, is actually anti-metaphysical. And this is not just a psychological or historical position, it's actually a result of a new kind of a logic that emerges, it's called polyadic logics, with, with what, what are called what we today call classic logic, but which are not really classic at all. Um, and with polyadic logics, they could do things that the scholastics couldn't do with their logic. And this becomes a devastating critique of things like space and time in scholastic logic using polyadic logics. And, and this was used to basically just slap around the, the metaphysics uh, that these, these early analytic philosophers, you know, uh, strawmanned, really. Um, and this is a deep tradition against anti-system, anti-world building, anti-metaphysics. And so I just want to really emphasize that this is super important to understand what's happening in philosophy today. Thank you so much, Miranda. That's very, very kind of you. Sidi Umar um, has written on, um, I believe you have a book on Bertrand Russell and analytic tradition. And I highly recommend that, um, well, I better get around to looking at it properly. But uh, uh, it's very wonderful to have you with us. and. Uh, very much looking forward to benefiting from you further. Inshallah, we will go into some, in the historical section, some of the foundations of, well, at least one very, very major antecedent of 
the subsequent deterioration of philosophy Allahuahua Immanuel Kant, and that will be in some detail. There's also a second paper coming out on specifically on Kant, which I'm hoping we'll get through the census um, by then, uh, which would be absolutely wonderful, in which case we can try to read it. Um, uh, well, at least it can be read in parallel to us actually going through the, that part in, in this book. But yes, I mean, you know, I really want these sessions to be a way for us all to benefit. I've got so much to benefit from all of you. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to ask various of you to present. City uh, Sachi has very kindly agreed to present on the 31st of January, but to really get to grips. I mean, this book, I spent seven years on it. Um, I don't want to self-eulogize, but it was a kind of labor of love. I at least loved writing it. Um, most of it was written in my living room in Amman. Um, and, um, and, you know, this project with City Cream has been such a uh, eye-opening and illuminating, stimulating um, thing to be involved with. But this is just the beginning. And, you know, one of the ideas behind bringing you all together is that the hope that as our project goes into its next stages, we can enlist your help for peer review, for exploring these issues more carefully, very specific aspects in more depth. Um, and so that, uh, you know, it's my hope, I mean, many of you already are writing, but it's my sincere hope that every single person here will themselves contribute to the process of, I don't want to say Tejdeed because it's very presumptuous, but will do their own part of Khidma in undertaking to treat very, very specific issues, foundational issues, which continue to be problems for people. Um, we have to get beyond the level of the level of general discourse. We have to go to the level of foundational discourse and not have to look to other people, whether it's the Thomists or the Platonists or whoever it happens to be, or, or writers writing hundreds of years ago in, in the Western tradition for answers to these very, very specific foundational questions. I mean, we've dealt with you know, the problem of objective truth. Uh, we've dealt with you know, the modern sense of objective. We've dealt with the problem of first principles, of the, the problem of the representation of knowledge in, in definitions. How can, how can essences and natures be graspable in terms of uh, uh, our relational language and so on? But um, there are so many other questions. And I'm just really hoping that uh, we can work together uh, in order to uh, try to achieve that aim of, of having something which is not necessarily a comprehensive uh, library of metaphysical library, but uh, something that's, that's grasping towards something close to that. And, you know, I, I need many, many more years to be able to do something like that. And I think we, we're all in it for the long haul. I mean, someone like Sidney Niaz, I met um, in 2007, 
and I don't mean to praise you, Sidney, forgive me, but, uh, you know, um, you know, Niaz made the commitment, I'm going to study for the next 40 years, and, like, that's it, no one's going to stop me, nothing's going to go in my way, and he left everything and dedicated his life to that path, and, and that's what we need to be, we need to be students from the cradle to the grave, it's not about, you know, <laughs> It's a sad thing, but it's not what we want. It's not that, you know, I, I went and studied for, you know, in, in Syria, I did my time, you know, now come and treat me like the, the big shake. Now I'm gonna tell you what our Mashaiah, you know, told us that um, you have to have good adab. And it's like, oh, your Mashaiah. And they're not learning anything. And this person's not learning anything. And he's just telling people um, basic commonplaces um, about uh, uh, Zaroum, which, you know, a good beneficial knowledge, but what seems to be more important than real knowledge is just the enactment of this kind of hierarchy of, you know, I'm the, I'm the alim and I'm the sheikh and you're the, you know, the humble laymen who are trying to improve your, your, um, your religious knowledge, you know, you live out your lives in, uh, in the, in, in in the, in you know the, the worldly bad um, modern world, and um, you know we need discourse which is empowering. We need people who will commit to years and years and years and years. We're, we need learning from the cradle to the grave, um, and we need to really nail certain issues. Um, it's not about making ourselves feel better. It's not about being able to go to bed feeling that uh, you know our, our iman is, faith, uh, is safe and we don't really have to think about that you know worrying thing anymore because someone gave me a half an hour lecture where he cried and beat his chest and now I feel you know better about everything and you know don't look at that cafe philosophy it's all you know we have everything in our tradition and don't worry. I mean yeah we need serious answers the problem that we face today is not so much a problem with the so-called awam, it's actually a problem with the khawas. Uh, you can't go to, and it's not their fault necessarily, it's because our knowledge structures have encountered a world that they didn't know about before, they, they don't fully understand. And so often the response can be reaction, which is, that's what you sometimes find that, you know, we, we uh, you know, save ourselves from, from that danger by creating a bubble of piety, but we don't really look at that too carefully. We, we, we adhere to the outward prescriptions of our deen. Um, and of course, that's very important. And you know, we have to work out whatever solution is feasible given our circumstances. But none of those kind of band-aids, none of those tawadeh type solutions can ever be ultimate solutions and, and really fully adequate solutions, which, yeah, I mean, well, I don't want to be trite and say for the next generation, but even for us, I mean, we might be stuck here for another 30, 40 years. Uh, do we really want, it, want the discourse to remain on that level where, you know, we're all, we don't have uh, you know, we, 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 we gain our kind of sharaf by Inti Sad to Cambridge and Oxford and Harvard and things. We don't have our own 
traditional uh, high-level institutions in place where you know, a lot of our so-called Islamic universities are really third-rate secular universities with Islamic studies on a, on a kind of worksheet. You know, they're not even reading. You know, it's problematic. You know, I'll be quiet because Maulana Kareem is talking. Just to repeat what Nia said, I'm not Maulana either, but um, I think you'll agree with me, would you not, Sidi Habibi, yes. that the tradition is much richer than those that are necessarily known to us or publicly known. Yes. So the, the, in an age of communications and uh, social media and so on, uh, those that are more apparent are not necessarily those that represent those traditions that are not lost, that are not being diluted, that are not in any way not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and consequently, uh, there is a tendency uh, that we find that those that study certain things which are not in, in the mainstream uh, very quickly soon consider themselves to be the only proponents of such a study, the only exactly. representatives of that. And I think you'd agree with me that, um, you know, that is not the case. And these things remain true. If they're true, then it has to be, they must be served by somebody. And whether we know them or not is... Uh, is uh, exactly. Different. We're talking about Nafs al here. What is our real tradition? Who are real alamat? We're also <laughs> faced with the fact that uh, as many of, of people, I feel very, very certain and they're acknowledged as, as great awliya, um, I'd be very lucky to meet uh, many of them. Um, sadly, very little rubbed off, as you can tell. But uh, uh, the, the Aulia and the great masters do not want to appear in this time. You know, they're going into hiding. They, they can't. Yeah. The situation is becoming so extreme that, I mean, I can't account for their, their decisions or, or what leads them to that. And it's, of course, you know, the, the divine guidance, but um, but what we know is that uh, very few of them, I mean, they need to have a special vocation now in order to be able to appear. And it's very difficult for them because there is so much confusion. There is so much willful misunderstanding. There's so much, uh, you know, we're, we're going through a well of, of uh, the heart of, uh, of eschatological phenomena. So, um, that, and that's true, it's, it's also true about the intellectual tradition. That's why one must be not suspicious or anything like that. And we always maintain outward adab. But when you see something that's waving the flag of, everything's absolutely fine, look at our wonderful alamat, and look at our councils and our conferences and our things, and, and uh, everything's being taken care of, and we've got the silsila, and we've got the tradition, we've got the transmissions, all in place, nothing's wrong, it's all absolutely fine. Um, and, you know, just come to us and we'll give you everything and you'll have the, you, know, you should be a little bit, little bit nervous about that because we are in an analogous situation to the man who, the poor man who, you know, got hit on the head very hard and then woke up and couldn't remember what happened. And then, you know, he starts piecing together everything and, and he, that's the, very much the situation of the Muslim world. We took a terrible blow and we don't really remember what happened um, and what's been lost. And I think, you know, isolation to some degree, Ozla, not isolation, Ozla to some degree, to some degree, knuckling down and not necessarily worrying about fitting into whatever current happens to be available now, but 
But looking you know, for, for the longer term is perhaps something that inshallah ta'ala, by God's grace, will yield beautiful results. That's what they tell me in any case. Maulana Man, would you mind concluding with a prayer which will bring some some baraka to this the cold environs of this um اللهم <laughs> واغفر لنا هذه الذنوب التي حجبتنا عنك يا أرحم الراحمين سبحانك قد أكرمتنا وتفضلت علينا وأسأنا إلى أنفسنا فيما بيننا وبينك فتولنا بفضلك وجودك ومنك وكرمك وإحسانك ووفقنا إلى ما تحب وترضى ولتفقنا فيما يجري به القضاء واغفر لأمة سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وتجاوز عن أمة سيدنا محمد واجعلنا هداة مهديين على نهدي سيد المرسلين اللهم إنا نسألك من الخير كل عجل وعجل ما علمنا منه ما لم نعلم ونعوذ بك من الشر كله عاجل وعجل ما علمنا منه ما لم نعلم اللهم نسألك من خير ما سألك من عبدك ونبيك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وسلم وعبادك الصالحون ونعوذ بك مما استعاذ به عبدك ونبيك سيدنا محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وعبادك الصالحون وأنت المستعان وعليك التكن ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلي وسلم وبارك على حبيبك سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله الفاتحة جزاك الله خيرا أبن والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته